This is episode number 445 with Sinan Özdemir, Director of Data Science at Directly. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a Chief Data Scientist and best-selling author on Deep Learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today, and now let's make the complex simple. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Crone, and I am so happy to be joined today by Sinan Özdemir, one of the most clear and articulate explainers of complex concepts that I've ever met. Sinan was founder and CTO of Kylie.ai, a conversational AI company that was successfully acquired. He now leads data science at the acquiring firm, a San Francisco-based process automation startup called Directly, that has raised a whopping $67 million so far. He's taught data science and math at a number of prominent institutions, including Johns Hopkins University and even in prison. On top of all that, in the past five years, he's somehow managed to find the time to publish four books with a fifth one expected this year. Thanks to Sinan's considerable breadth of knowledge and good-natured humor, this episode is flush with both facts and fun. We focus on how to design and engineer effective conversational AI algorithms, also known as chatbots, as well as how to successfully integrate them with businesses to truly automate processes. We also chat about why it's so special if data scientists can act as machine learning engineers as well, the hard and soft skills you need to work on the cutting edge of natural language processing at a rapidly growing startup, what it's like to teach university level math inside a prison, and the incredible usefulness of pure mathematical proofs for making real-world decisions. We do get a little technical at some points, so today's episode may appeal primarily to data scientists who are interested in building natural language processing applications like conversational AIs, but there are also practical tidbits for anyone who'd like to understand how chatbots can be effectively integrated into a business to create efficiencies with automation. Sinan, welcome to the show. Where in the world are you? I am. Well, I'm right here. I'm right here in, in <laughs> what is currently sunny San Francisco, California. It hasn't been sunny for the last couple of days, but it's currently sunny, so I'm happy about that. Is sunny a metaphor because your lockdown just lifted a little bit? Or you uh, mean like, I don't <laughs> Is there is there is there literal sunshine in San Francisco? Is that an there is thing? literal sunshine right now, which is which is excellent. Uh, but it is actually a bit of a metaphor. Yeah, yesterday was uh, uh, California kind of reopened a little bit more to uh, outdoor dining and you know tattoo shops and and, and hair uh, and haircut places are, which are is, opened again. Which is how you have such a slick looking haircut on the show today. I did. Yes, I I, <laughs> I was one of those people who, as soon as I got the email uh, from the from my barber that we were reopening on Thursday, <laughs> I said, what is the earliest you have an appointment on Thursday that I can get a haircut? Nice. Well, the people watching the YouTube version of the podcast can enjoy that great oh, yes. haircut. <laughs> um, and so you've been on the podcast before. You've been on, you were on one of the first episodes. So there's been many hundreds of episodes. We're now in the 400s. 
And you were on episode 21. 21, um, wow. Yeah, which was January like, what, 20. Four years ago? That was four years ago, January 2017. And then you were back three years later in January 2020 for episode 333, working up to that 666 episode. Uh, <laughs> you listened and, to it twice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the second time, you get to hear the secret message from the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and now we're recording. It's it's the final days of January 2021. This episode won't be live in January, so we're ruining your January streak. But um, it uh, it is about a year since your last um, appearance on the program. And so tell us what's been going on in your world. Uh, prior to the last episode, your company had just been acquired. So you had a startup, Kylie.ai, and that was acquired by Directly. How's that going? Do you, do you hate them yet? <laughs> <laughs> it's going great. I don't hate them. Uh, I, I do not plan to hate them in the future. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's really great. So yeah, as you mentioned, we were uh, acquired in September of 2019. And I, I've been with the acquiring company directly uh, ever since uh, as their director of data science. And it's been going very well. It, it, it's really great to be a part of an acquisition where the acquiring company uh, really cares about the vision of the acquired company and, and continues that vision uh, as they as we incorporate into their culture. And culture is great. Uh, the people are great. You know, that is that is one of the main reasons I'm staying. But it, it is also really nice to be recognized and acknowledge for the work that we did at Kylie and, and being able to bring that over to help the, the directly platform as well. Beautiful. That sounds, that sounds absolutely great. It's like the dream of being acquired in that kind of situation where you get to continue on and continue to do the great work and have your vision. Uh, so what do you guys do? I mean, we don't want to talk about it too long because I know we've talked about that on previous episodes, but for people who haven't listened just a little bit on what you were doing at Kylie.ai and, and how that has uh, rolled into the directly work. Yeah, so Kylie.ai was focused uh, more on chatbot and conversational AI generation, maintenance, and optimization. So really what that boils down to is we had enterprise-grade clients who would come to Kylie to help build, operate, and maintain conversational AI systems that could also interact with customers through RPA, robotic process automation. So the bot could have basically actually do things for you, not just tell you how to do things. Oh, um, so man. when we, uh, yeah, I know. And when we went into directly, directly uh, at the time was a lot more about building global networks of community experts for their clients. So one of their clients is a you know global travel and hospitality company. They'll find people around the world who have used their platform, used their system a lot, uh, know the system a lot and have them help to automate and and um, optimize their customer support systems rather than having to have a bottleneck of, uh, of people internally. So when we came on to Directly, we were bringing our conversational AI technology to build this pretty massive human-in-the-loop pipeline to not only build conversational AI systems for our clients, but also have humans and crowd uh, crowd networks in the background constantly monitoring, optimizing, and retooling that AI so that we're always catching the latest trends, updating our language, and, and making sure that the bots are always up to date, which is one of the big problems with bots is that they decay, they, they, they decay over time. You know, It's like driving a car out of the lot. It loses value immediately. Once you build a bot, there's going to be something new tomorrow 
that the bot doesn't know about. Yeah, like so if you had a bot working in the healthcare system and uh, it, it, it was trained a couple of years ago, it wouldn't have the word COVID in its vocabulary, which is obviously exactly. going to be a big blind spot today. Exactly. Yeah. And that's obviously a, the, a very well-known example of any, any company that has to uh, deal with the ramifications of COVID. That word didn't exist over a year ago. And, and now all of a sudden, within a span of a couple of weeks for some, for some companies, they had to not only learn what it was, but learn how to answer questions about it to their end users. And that's where we help. Nice. Um, so I want to hear about what your day-to-day is like and what kinds of tools you're using to build these amazing tools. Um, that's a really incredible thing to be able to be making that connection from the chatbot right through to the RPA. So I can't wait to dig into that. But first, I want to discuss your favorite hobby. Um, you're an expert. You're an expert skateboarder. I understand. You've got the skateboard there. We can see it in the video. Uh, yeah, I guess you can't see it in the video. Um, well, I'm going to caveat that a little bit. <laughs> when you say expert skateboarder, uh, I, I definitely purchased a skateboard during quarantine. <laughs> hoping uh, that I would be able to learn how to ride it very well. Uh, and that didn't quite pan out the way I had planned. Turns out I'm very bad at skateboarding. Uh, <laughs> but I, I'll, I'll often see it in my office and go, hey, maybe I'll give it a try again today. And then, nope, I'm still bad at it. <laughs> nice. You may already have heard of Data Science Go, which is the conference run in California by Super Data Science. And you may also have heard of Data Science Go Virtual, the online conference we run several times per year. In order to help the super data science community stay connected throughout the year, from wherever you happen to be on this wacky giant rock called planet Earth, we've now started running these virtual events every single month. You can find them at datasciencego.com connect. They're absolutely free. You can sign up at any time. And then once a month, we run an event where you will get to hear from a speaker engage in a panel discussion, or an industry expert Q&A session. And critically, there are also speed networking sessions where you can meet like-minded data scientists from around the globe. This is a great way to stay up to date with industry trends, hear the latest from amazing speakers, meet peers, exchange details, and stay in touch with the community. So once again, these events run monthly. You can sign up at datasciencego.com connect I'd love to connect with you there. Um, all right, so let's talk about um, the tools that you are actually expert at. So let's talk about uh, what you're doing at Directly. I mean, I guess it would be interesting a bit to hear about having been the founder at Kylie um, and the CTO at Kylie, how that changed um, as you joined Directly and uh, you know, what your responsibilities are now today a little bit about your day-to-day, -day, and then we'll talk about the kinds of tools that your team's using right after that. Sure, yeah. Anyone who has worked for a startup of less than 20 people uh, and, and potentially even having been a founder or C-suite of, of said company of under 20 people know that the shift from working at a company like that to working at a company of you know even over 50 people is pretty dramatic. Uh, I think especially for myself, who coming from the CTO founder position, my day-to-day my -day job was whatever needed to happen to make sure that our company succeeded today, tomorrow, and as far into the future as we could plan. Um, so that entailed making sure that our DevOps structure was 
not crumbling at the time, <laughs> making sure our monitoring systems were were up to date and all this all these things. Moving into directly, I have been able to more focus myself on the data science, AI, machine learning side of things and, and rely on a extremely talented team of people to handle um, the things that I, you know, was trying to handle myself at Kylie. So, you know, the DevOps teams, the the QA teams are are all um, supporting the work that now my team from Kylie can focus on how do we implement the latest and greatest machine learning and AI and move the needle a little bit in, in, in a direction that helps our clients and helps um, helps the community at large. Nice. Well, as much as DevOps and QA are important topics, given that we're a data science podcast, I'm sure our audience <laughs> is happy to hear that that's what we're going to be focusing on. Um, so yeah, tell us about that. What kinds of, uh, you know, obviously without divulging any IP, um, you know, what kinds of tools are you using? What kinds of models are you building? Um, yeah. How do you link a chatbot to rheumatic, to rheumatic, to robotic process automation? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll touch on the kind of the, the pipeline that we, we deal with to make a bot useful. Because I think there's this, there's a very big disclaimer going through people's brains that um, you know bots aren't that great. They don't really actually solve your problem. Bots are good at getting me to a human who's going to then solve my problem for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the, the differences and approaches that we're taking are, I would say, kind of threefold. Um, the first is we are constantly investing in our pipeline to maintain the AI. So as we mentioned before, it's not just building a bot, but it's keeping the bot up to date. So we have a lot of structures in place to analyze raw text by trying to extract the latent structure underneath and do topic modeling, clustering to understand what are the different uh, topics that are being discussed and using those topics to incorporate into the bot through an intent architecture, entity architecture, uh, bot responses, automatic um, bot responses, that entire pipeline is invested in uh, very, very heavily. And it's not just something that we do quarterly or monthly. Uh, We actually run this pipeline in in some cases daily. So we are daily looking for new topics that may arise. And, you know, this, that seems to some people like overkill, but, you know, when it's early March of 2020, and these new topics are starting to crop up about this pandemic around the world, it matters. You know, the, catching these things as they're happening matters. And obviously, that's a pretty big scale. But even at the lower scale, uh, understanding when there's an outage or there's some kind of a big you know, fatal bug in, in some software that won't really last for weeks, but may last for a few hours until it's patched. Um, those kinds of things are really crucial to catch for companies because they they're really correlated to people's perception of the success of the bot. Is does the bot recognize that there's this new topic in the world, or is it just trained on the data from two years ago? Beautiful. Um, so, I mean, what do you use Python? How do you what kinds of libraries are you doing to you know what, what are you using mm-hmm. to do this topic modeling and so on? Yeah, our main language in the data science team is absolutely Python. Uh, we surprise. we do a uh, surprise, right? I know it's this new hot thing called Python, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, so yeah, the Python is the is the 
the main language that we utilize uh, in our data science team. And we use it both as a scripting and as a production level uh, backend code. So uh, all of our data scientists are, are, are not just machine learning engineers, but they're also contributing to the actual backend architecture to support nice. the machine learning, which I think is really crucial. Uh, I think you know data science being a combination of math, computer science, and domain expertise, I think it's important to be um, understand yourself and, and which of those three areas you are the most comfortable in, uh, but also strive to try to be a, a little bit knowledgeable in all three of those areas. You know, it's, it's if I can build a, a great machine learning model, it would also be great if I could also understand the systems that support serving the model and versioning the model and understanding why all of that's important. I think is also crucial to the data science journey. I totally agree. I think that that is the ideal and it's nice that you have that. I think it's also probably enjoyable for your machine learning engineers to be able to be full stack like that and to have the experience of of training models. I think people get a lot of enjoyment and fulfillment out of that. So it's nice that they can work up and down the data scientist stack. Yeah, I think it all comes down to, I mean, no one wants to feel like they're working in a vacuum. Right, you know, you know, I don't think people really enjoy the the feeling of being on this team where they're they're expected to be given a problem, find the data, you know, process the data, do the feature engineering, do the modeling, spit out a model, and say, well, I guess I'm done. Move on to the next one. I think uh, people really enjoy understanding. Well, why are we doing this? So what happened before? Why are you asking us to do this? What is the purpose of this model? Is this supposed to help a KPI? Is this supposed to be an internal, external model? You know, what's the reasoning for this? Um, all the way to now that we're done, where's it going to live? You know, let me tell you what architectures we used and therefore how big it is in megabytes, how much memory you're going to need to process this. How, how fast does it predict things in batch and how many can it do in a single batch? All of those um, may seem like small things, but they, they really matter if, if, the person who's going to use that model at the end is saying, actually, I need to process 10,000 data points at a time. They go, oh, this can't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. So uh, you mentioned to me uh, before we started recording that you had some particular use cases from your work that you might like to share. Um, have we covered those already or... I started to. We can get into okay. it a little bit more. Yeah, I let's think, dig into uh, it. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, obviously... Uh, on everybody's mind is is the COVID nineteen pandemic, and as, as it relates to in the early stages, again in in, in March of two thousand twenty, it is it became really obvious to customer support experts and, and customer support experts being account managers, being conversational designers, uh, machine learning engineers that there's this new topic. To understand that the bot needs to understand, or else the bots will be grossly out of date. Uh, and I think a lot of people stop there and they say, "Covid is a thing. Let's write a response, put out a response. Done. We we did it. We or we're now automating it." Um, however, it, it, it's it, it then became very obvious that underneath this umbrella of Covid, depending on which domain you're in, there are these nuanced topics. So. An example for us would be a, a hospitality company, you know, someone dealing with travel. People who like to travel obviously got a uh, bit of a shock when they realized, oh, we can't do any of those travelings in, in pretty much all of 2020. So 
we need a refund. We need to figure this out. What's What are the next steps here? Because no one can travel. And then it becomes an issue of, well, where were you going? Right? So you're getting into these nuanced subtopics where, where are you going to leave the country? Were you going to go to a, um, right. a, a hotspot of COVID or not a hotspot of COVID? Hotspots of COVID change by the week, sometimes by the day. So understanding all of that is more nuanced than just, did you say the word COVID? Here is our one pager on how we are dealing with COVID. And our system, as I mentioned, you know, we're daily looking for new topics, is able to uh, understand COVID, but also recognize these subtopics of there's this large category of people going to Disney World. Uh, and they are they are talking about Disney World and COVID, and the rules about Disney World are very different than the rules about traveling to Italy in that time. So understanding the differences between what city are you going to, why are you going there, when were you going to go, all of those sub-topics become crucial to the company. And if if they're not able to understand that latent structure of the conversations, then they, they, they're going to find a lot of people who are frustrated, who say, I understand that you know what COVID is, but I have a very specific problem and I need your help with it. Nice. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, that is definitely critically important. All right. Thank you, Sanan. I love that use case. It is so important uh, and it shows what it's like to be working um, as someone in your kind of position where you're needing to be managing these conversational AIs and have them be effective for uh, all of your clients. Um, another topic that is, I think, uh, really prescient, something that comes up a lot in conversations, we've been talking about it a lot in recent podcast episodes, is this idea of auto ML. So do you find that auto ML is helpful uh, to you and to your team? Uh, do you think that there's potential in it um, today or in the future? Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, AutoML, as it is today, is, is not a technology that we are leveraging heavily at directly or at all, to be, to be totally transparent. And AutoML, so the idea of AutoML being that you give your data to this system and this black box, more or less, system. And the system says, I got this, and spits out a model and, and, and sometimes does even the more legwork of I'm, I'm serving it for you. Here's an API if you want to hit it and get results back in real time. Um, and I've already tuned all of the parameters that I am aware of to optimize your model. So you're done. Um, and I think that idea is excellent. I love that idea. Like The idea that you could give your data to a system and that system can figure it out for you, it, it sounds great. Um, the, the problem comes in when it becomes the de facto alternative to data scientists and machine learning engineers because there is this notion that, oh, machine learning was difficult and you had to be an expert, a PhD in math to understand it. But now we have SageMaker, AutoML, insert, uh, insert AutoML technology here that can just <laughs> do it for us. You know, thank goodness we can finally use that. Um, and I don't think that's the right shift. Uh, I, I don't think that's the big shift that we're seeing as a trend, but I don't. I, I, I hope that doesn't become the big shift because there's a lot of, new, again, there's always nuance. There's always nuance in either the domain knowledge, i.e. this data isn't 
fair. This data isn't clean. This data isn't good enough for any model to be able to interpret. So let alone an auto ML system that doesn't have any humans in the loop. Yeah. Recognizing that alone is difficult. Totally. I I think we get this idea. I think part of why auto ML solutions might seem attractive to people is you say, machine learning engineers, data scientists, these are expensive positions to fill. And so if you're in the C-suite looking at opportunities to maybe reduce some cost, uh, have some efficiencies, or maybe even just do more with your existing resources, you say, okay, I've heard about AutoML, I've heard about SageMaker. And so they say to the CTO or the director of data science, how can we get this involved? How is this going to save us money? Um, Does this mean that we can do more with the same amount of headcount? And it's these issues that you're bringing up that I, I... I mean, there's this idea that some decades in the future, maybe none of us need to be doing any work at all, which I I don't know how likely that really is. Uh, Maybe in our lifetimes, I don't know. But uh, the idea that you can be replacing data scientists, I think, in the coming decades with things like AutoML, for the reasons you're saying, I I think it's a stretch, um, especially if you're going to be working um, at the cutting edge, putting systems into production like you are. So bias, you mentioned, things, uh, you know, spurious associations that are in the data that, as you mentioned, are difficult even for a, a trained human expert to notice um, to a machine that isn't likely to look spurious. It just is um, useful. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. These things are correlated. I can <laughs> use that information. <laughs> oh, I'll use the the ID number. <laughs> it's the art of correlation. <laughs> exactly. Um, but at the same time, it's there are cases where I am comfortable giving data to a machine to help me build a model. So, for example, a very uh, a very specific case in my field of NLP, which is where I spend most of my professional time and career, is intent modeling. the The idea that there's a, a text classification. At the end of the day, text goes in, label comes out. That label happens to correspond to a topic or an intent of an end user in a bot. But at the end of the day, it's text classification. Now, I'm comfortable relying on third-party tools to build an intent model for me. Think things like Dialogflow as a good example. Dialogflow has an intent model feature that you can use to leverage and and host and build an intent model. However, they require training data. So the the hard work is still on the human to identify which intents you want, get the training data, clean the training data, make sure your intents aren't overlapping. You You have reset password windows and reset passwords Mac those training phrases are going to collide and it's going to be difficult for the machine on in some occasions to tell the difference between those two intents. Mm-hmm. Only a data scientist would think of that or a, a, a bot designer or someone experienced with intent models, but you can't trust the model builder alone to understand that. So there's, there's, the, there's a trade-off, but I think the hard work still has to be done by a human today. And so making sure that I'm understanding this properly, um, intent modeling is where you're trying to understand the intent of your user, right? Exactly. So it, it, it's it's usually as simple as a text classification. You know, a, a text utterance goes in and then a label comes out. 
more complicated features will associate with hierarchical. So you can you can give it several turns of a conversation, back and forths of a conversation and label the intent. But at the end of the day, usually it's text goes in, intent comes out. Yeah. Nice. Okay, I get it. I get it. And then um, so the idea is that a machine on its own can be very good at identifying these these patterns like password recovery, I think was the, the example you gave. Uh, but that something system specific, being mindful of what the operating system is, this is something that we might need to um, nudge an algorithm in the right direction, or maybe even hard code in a way to say, if the word, if a particular operating system comes up, that is like something that needs to be treated very special. And it's highly indicative of um, the topic that the person's interested in, the intent that this person has with the system. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of the times it's a secondary model where you're trying to extract what are called entities from the text. So you have the intent, which is reset password. And then you have your entities, which would be like your operating system. Uh, a bot would then have to use both of those things to be able to give you the best response. But the point is, if you rely solely on the intent modeling system as an auto ML, you know, saying, here's all the data we came up with, which is in and of itself difficult to get all that data and compile it, mm -hmm. uh, you shouldn't just trust the model to know the best way to separate out into these different intents. There's you have to measure the model, you have to constantly optimize it and remove training phrases, add training phrases, remove intents, add intents. Um, so there's there's a, always a large human in the loop component uh, to that. Beautiful. So when you are um, building your systems um, with the kinds of NLP expertise that you have and that you use every day, what are you looking for in the people that you would like to work with? So like what kinds of skills do you want in the people that you hire? If somebody wants to be an NLP expert like you are, or be building conversational AIs, um, getting involved with, with robotic process automation, um, what, what should they be doing? How can they develop the hard skills or the soft skills needed um, to work alongside you? Sure, yeah, that's a great question. Because it's a great question because I'll, I don't get to talk a lot about the the other side of the skills that I, I personally tend to look for uh, when 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 considering uh, people to join my team, because it's not always about do you do you know machine learning pipeline structure? Do you know how to formulate a machine learning problem? Do you know how to evaluate a machine learning problem? Those are all extremely important. You know, do not get me wrong. I look for those. Uh, we we look for those. But what I'm also looking for is. Especially, and again, I, I'm speaking as someone who has worked mostly in smaller companies, less than 100 people. I one of the skills I look for the most is: Can you teach me something that I don't already know? Uh, and that's and that to me kind of answers two questions. One is: I am not, you know, I'm not good at everything. I can't be. No one can be. So I'm. I'm looking for someone to supplement a part of knowledge in the world that our team currently doesn't possess. So when I say me, I mean my team. Can you teach our team something that we don't know? Uh, and so that, that will show us that you're bringing something to the table that we didn't really consider or we don't know too much about. And I think that's, that's crucial. The second thing it, it, it considers is how good is this person at explaining what's in their head out loud to a, a team of people 
And then does the team of people then know how to take action on what that person said? So what, I'll, what, I, what I sometimes do is I'll organize a panel of different team members from across different fields in my company. So machine learning, uh, conversational design, analysis, um, you know, pure en- backend engineering. And I'll, I'll, I'll prompt the, the interviewee in advance. You know, I don't do it on the spot. And I'll say, I'm hoping you can create a two, three slide deck. And I, I would love it for if you could spend 15 minutes explaining your either your process on how you solved our take-home problem or explain a topic uh, that you deal with at work or your hobby that you're just passionate about, interested in as it relates to machine learning and data science. And we say, keep in mind, person, the people that you will be talking to are not all machine learning engineers. Some mm-hmm. will be. Mm-hmm. So can you explain your work to a machine learning engineer and also a non-machine learning engineer in the room at the same time? And, and, and that, that skill to me is crucial. As someone who used to be a teacher, I find that skill to be really crucial because it, for me, correlates to how quickly can you and I get to a problem uh, solved together because I'm going to be trying to explain something to you. You're going to explain something to me. And we have to understand each other and iterate on each other's work to be able to get to the problem being solved. And, and that, for me, is a big correlation to, can you teach me something, please? And I'm going to ask you questions to make sure I understood what you taught me. Beautiful. So there's kind of two tiers to this. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on understanding this, but the kind of the first tier with this kind of assessment is that you're looking for somebody who has some kind of domain knowledge that complements your existing teams. And then the second tier is that not only do they have that knowledge, but they can impart that knowledge effectively to a broad range of people, which not only demonstrates they have the domain knowledge, but also demonstrates that they're an effective communicator. Exactly. And and again, this is all caveated with, this is extremely crucial at smaller companies where every person you bring on is is vital. <laughs> Every new person you bring onto your team is vital. And it's it becomes so important to understand how well are we going to work together? And exactly as you said, are you an effective communicator? Um, are you bringing something to the table that we previously had not even considered in some cases? You know, I find myself in interviews writing down <laughs> what they're saying and saying, Circling is like, I never thought of that. That's, that's really interesting. And I, uh, that's the kind of light bulb moment I look for. And those are the people that I'm most excited about potentially bringing onto the team. Beautiful. Um, I'm not going to get into the detail, but I do something slightly sim- similar with my interviews. So I, I totally appreciate the way you're doing it. And I love it. So speaking of teaching and being a good teacher, um, you yourself have um, quite a bit of background in teaching. So you've taught at General Assembly in yeah. San Francisco and Washington, D.C. You've taught at Johns Hopkins as a TA and an adjunct lecturer. Yes. Um, you've taught at Goucher College in Maryland, and you've taught in prison. I have, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I was uh, teaching in uh, Maryland prison systems for about two years. It was actually a program through Goucher College where we were teaching courses for college credit. So we were actually able oh. to offer a college credit uh, to the people taking the course. Uh, and it was 
actually, if I'm being honest, it was actually one of the, one of the best teaching experiences of my life, you know, even considering you know, Johns Hopkins and boot camps like General Assembly uh, in there. That yes, I have I have taught a wide variety. I even used to teach online high school, uh, online AP AP calculus and statistics oh, for, uh, wow. for a while. Yeah, that was what my full time job. <laughs> so I, I if if I remember correctly, most of these roles. So okay, AP calculus, AP stats, uh, and then I think a lot of these jobs like General Assembly, you were teaching uh, analytics and data science and this kind of thing, right? Uh, yes. And what were you teaching in prison? So as part of the prison program, I was I was still teaching math. That was my main uh, domain. Cool. But I was teaching, I mean, AP Calculus. I, I taught Wow. AP, yeah, I, I, I was doing um, AP Calculus level Calc 1, obviously, you know, in, in college, Calc 1 in, in, in Calculus classes, Algebra classes. Uh, it was a range over, the, over a couple of years, but these are you know, college courses that we were offering credit for. So wow. I'm, I'm teaching Calc 1 the same way I would teach Calc 1 in any university. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So there's internal programs at the prisons where they're studying towards a degree as well? Absolutely. Uh, college degree. Wow. Cool. Absolutely, and, then, yeah. and you were actually, this is, uh, you know, long before COVID. So you're actually going in and just lecturing in a classroom. It just happened to be. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. This was I, a while ago. This is about, I guess, five years, five-ish years ago, a little bit more now. Um, so it's been, it's been a while, but yeah, this is totally in person. I would uh, drive, <laughs> drive to the, drive to the prison um, every couple times a week uh, for uh, office hours and the actual classes. And I go in and teach a classroom. I had my board, I had, we had books and I taught calculus. Yeah. <laughs> it was wow. That's cool. I, that opens my eyes to something I just didn't know went on, and I really appreciate having my eyes open. It's, to that. From what I remember, it was one of the few institutions that offered uh, this level of courses outside of getting uh, a GED, which I think is is fairly common. Right. Um, so it, it was one of the few uh, systems where um, the uh, incarcerated folk could take courses uh, in in an effort to get college credit. And actually get a degree and, and use that degree. So it was a very rewarding experience, and I, I think about it often, and I actually really miss, uh, miss it. Wow, that's cool. And for our uh, listeners outside of the U.S., a GED is a, a high school uh, equivalent kind of diploma, right? Yes. Um, yes. Cool. So this is one step beyond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, rel- like, not maybe the most common thing in prison, but not uncommon and uh i can only imagine a rewarding experience for the incarcerated folks and super interesting to hear that even for you one of the most enriching uh teaching experiences yeah and obviously i'm not an expert in criminal justice i am i am i'm I'm simply someone who really loves math and teaching and when i was given the opportunity to teach math in a new environment to people who really wanted to learn uh, I, I just kind of jumped at it and, you know, the students were some of the most, uh, um, they were willing to learn so much more than some of the other courses I would teach, uh, between, you know, middle school all the way to university. Uh, so it was just every day I wanted to be there. Um, and I was just really happy to be able to do that. That's beautiful. Um, so related topic, you're talking about teaching. 
math and calculus. So you, your formal training, your formal education is in pure math. So yes. do you want to tell us a bit about what you were looking at in pure math, uh, how that contrasts with applied math, and how despite data science being a almost entirely kind of applied math area, how the pure math that you learned is useful um, as a data scientist? Sure. And I, I think the um, debate between pure math and applied math comes up a lot, especially when you're someone who comes from that background. Uh, they always ask, why didn't you do applied math? Or to the applied people, why didn't you do pure math? And honestly, every time I hear that debate or conversation, in the back of my mind, I'm going, we all know, we all like math. I don't know why we're fighting about it. We all like math, right? <laughs> like, this is why we're here. I don't understand that we have to... Um, divide over this. But I, I guess at the end of the day, the the main difference is at least how I experienced it college at, at Johns Hopkins was the applied math pathway was focused more on statistics, probability, hypothesis testing, um, these kinds of methodologies, as opposed to the pure math track, which obviously I know more about because I was on, focused on uh, proof uh, proof solving and how to break down the rules of math to its kind of very core and then build it back up to understand new concepts in mathematical thinking. So how do you take the idea of integers, you know, one, two, three, four, five, <laughs> break it down to its rules and then try to apply those rules to another system or number system and see if it still works. And I think there's a loss, and to your point, of data science being um, more of an applied math technique. I think that is true today, but I think there's a lot of corollaries from abstract pure math that can also be taken into account in machine learning. The idea that there are um, you know, calculus is you know often considered both pure and applied math because again, it's all math. <laughs> um, calculus is a, a a huge component of understanding the inner workings of deep learning, as is linear algebra, which again can be considered both pure and applied math. So there's a lot of takeaways from both tracks in data science. Beautiful, yeah. So. Uh... Proof solving and becoming competent with that can be useful across the board uh, in your data science career and maybe even just in life in general. Uh, yeah, I think so. You know, the the ability to understand where you're starting from, point A, see in general where you're trying to go, point B, and, and figure out iterative logical steps to get from A to B, and, and, and not just figuring out the steps, but being able to adjust those steps as you acquire more information is it, such a combination of the proof solving of pure math with the hypothesis updating prior posterior knowledge in applied math, right? Like I can, I can come up with this proof, but as I go, I'm going to have to adjust to actually get there along the way as I get new information. So really a combination. It's all math to me. <laughs> I like that. So uh, I, I like, I don't know why I'm thinking of this concept, but like, I'm like, all right, I really want to go on a date with this person. That's the point I want to get to. I'm going <laughs> to prove how I can get there. <laughs> Even now, though if I'm being honest, this is maybe a different podcast. Uh, I will try a different <laughs> technique. <laughs> um, I can't math my way onto those dates that I can't get. Um, I haven't been able to so figure it out. <laughs> you know. 
Nice. Well, bringing some math into into real life, uh, I mean, maybe not exactly a dating example, but you love math so much. I mean, maybe that should be obvious to our listeners by this point um, that you have several math tattoos. I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> do you want to tell us about them? Or maybe I can even get sure. you for the YouTube viewers uh, to show some of them off. Sure. Um, can't show all of them off, unfortunately. But <laughs> I uh, actually, you know, we just talked about proofs. Um, one of my more recent tattoos, I think I can get to it. There it is. Oh, nice. Is, uh, is oh, a yeah. reference to my favorite proof, which is a pretty simple proof for those who are on the math track. It is the proof that the square root of two is irrational. Oh. Um, so, you know, never ending decimal never repeats. Uh, and the proof is a, t- a type of proof called contradiction, mm. which is one of the main styles of proof, which is, you assume the end result is actually false. So you assume the contradiction and then you arrive at a uh, falsehood. So for in this case, you, what if the square root of two was rational? And then you try to work your way to a contradiction, which is why it's called proof by contradiction. Um, And I think it's a, a lot of the times it is how I think about a lot of problems, both professionally and personally is okay. I want to prove that I'll, I'll, I'll make up an example. I'll try on the spot. I I want to show that this bot uh, isn't working. Let's say I'll I'll try to be as vague as I can. Well, let's assume it was working. What would I expect to be true if it was working? Well, I'd expect the precision score to be above eighty percent. Okay. Well, let me go check the precision score. It's sixty. The bot isn't working. That's a very, very generalized example. Yeah, but it, yeah, yeah. it doesn't it does influence a lot of the ways that I think about problems is okay, well let's let's assume the opposite and let me see if I can arrive at a contradiction. And that will hopefully enforce my belief about the problem at hand. Oh, I love this. I mean, I come from an applied math background, so I haven't done a lot of proofs. And hearing you talk about it, it makes me really excited about it. It's like there's this whole new world that I've got to explore. I can see yeah. the value in it. Yeah. And honestly, it, it doesn't take a pure mathematician to appreciate a lot of these proofs. You know, if you go on YouTube and you just look up square root of two irrational, you'll find several two minute, like this is not a long proof. It is about 10 lines of math and they're all pretty followable. There's two minute videos of people just walking through. Here's how it is on the back of a napkin. Here's why the square root of two is irrational. And that's it. Have a good day. So there's, you can appreciate these proofs without having the, intricate knowledge of the set of irrational the set of rational numbers and what that all means and you know you can still appreciate it i think yeah and the other ones are kind of references to uh game of life automata there's a bunch (laughs) nice well that's cool i mean it was great to take a deep dive into one of your tattoos maybe next year when we have you on the show again it seems inevitable that you'll be on the program again soon one tattoo a year yeah that's the (laughs) promise exactly that sounds good um all right so that's beautiful i love what we've covered today um, I, we always answer, or we always answer, we always end the program, um, with the same question. So, um, what books are you reading right now? Or what books do you recommend for our audience? Same, same question every time. And I'm prepared. <laughs> and I am more prepared the same than ever. answer every time. No, I'm more, I'm more prepared than ever this time. Nice. Wow, <laughs> so we can is, see it on YouTube. You see exactly what book you Yeah, about. so it's called Designing Voice User Interfaces. It's an O'Reilly book. Um, the, the subtitle is actually, I think, more 
indicative of what it's about, The Principles of Conversational Experiences. This is actually a book recommended to me by a colleague. Uh, she is an extremely talented conversational design, bot architecture design, intent modeling um, expert. Mm. She recommends this book to a lot of people, um, especially machine learning engineers dealing with bots, chatbots, conversational AIs. What's her because, name? Uh, Lauren Senna. She mm. is um, an excellent person, excellent colleague. Uh, she she recommends this book because it, it doesn't just talk about the actual machine learning behind everything. It, it, it more gets into the design of the conversation, why the channels matter, why it matters, who your end users are, how to talk to different end users. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's sections on advanced natural language understanding, but there's also sections on context and why it's why it's important to keep track of context, vulgarity, and how do you deal with that? It's a lot of these principles about how to have an automated conversation, which, you know, going back to the beginning of the episode, it's it's not just about your your hard skills of can you build a model, can your auto ML build you a model? It's there's a lot of things to keep in mind that for now only a human can really do. Nice. Well, your book recommendation is not only one that I highly value because that sounded super interesting and it sounds like a very nicely well-written book, but also because you've written four books since 2016. So in the last five years, you've had four books come out and I heard a rumor you might be working on a fifth. Do you want to divulge any of that to our audience? Yeah, I am working on a new book in 2021. Um, my, my goal is to um, finish it up get it out there by the end of 2021 but it is a a uh it is a feature on well is a feature engineering book a feature uh, on feature a feature on feature engineering uh it is uh, effectively a book of case studies that i'm working on that will be working through different feature engineering ideas different domains image healthcare nlp um stock trading even though you know Stock trading, stock trading is, is very volatile, but there's lessons to be learned in the time series data that it offers. So working mm-hmm. through different examples and, and the, the core of the book is there's a whole world of data science before you even introduce your supervised machine learning model, your, your classification, your regression, your, your name it. There's a whole world. And that world is getting data, evaluating its fairness. There's evaluating the features that are redundant or are, are dependent on other features. There's interpolating missing data. There's this whole world of work to do before you call your dot fit method. So mm-hmm. the book really focuses on that hidden world of feature engineering, and it tries to do so by working through different examples. But you know, working, working on it this year, and I, I'm excited to hopefully get it out by the end of the year. Amazing. It's, yeah, it is such an important topic. I agree 100%. It doesn't get enough focus in books. So I think that there's a great market for this. I can't wait to read it. So for people who are interested in knowing about your future book launches or anything else you're working on, or maybe just starting a conversation with you, um, how can our listeners contact you, follow you, find you? Yes, I am. I'm not that active on Twitter, but I do have a Twitter, uh, prof underscore Oz. I, uh, people can find me, um, on kind of the traditional social media, you know, uh, LinkedIn, uh, and, and, and Twitter, obviously I, I don't currently have a homepage, but that is something I also hope to change in 2021. <laughs> nice. uh, I, I know that should be easier than writing a book. It's not great podcast material. Sorry. <laughs> I don't have a website, but I will one day I promise. <laughs> <laughs> 
But uh, please, you know, uh, obviously find me on, on on LinkedIn and Twitter. I am active enough that I will read uh, something that you that you write, and hopefully, and you know, find find time to reply. <laughs> nice, Sinan. I've learned so much. Beautiful to have you on, and can't wait to have you on again soon. Thanks so much for having me, and I look forward to our our fourth our fourth time together. <laughs> Perfect. We'll see you then. Well, there you are. We sure were lucky to have Sinan visit us for a third time on the podcast. Our primary focus this time around was on the effective design and engineering of conversational AI. With practical tips, such as updating the chatbot's vocabulary and topics on a daily basis to ensure it's up to date on the terminology of the latest world events. And linking the chatbot to robotic process automation so that it's actually doing something in the real world, such as increasing efficiency within your business. We also talked about how useful it can be if machine learning engineers are able to perform the role of a data scientist, thereby working all the way up and down the data science stack from modeling through to deployment. How AutoML is unlikely to be taking data scientists' jobs away in the foreseeable future. How essential it is in a relatively small company to bring your own expertise, your own unique expertise to the table, and to be able to communicate that expertise to people outside of your domain. We talked about incarcerated people being especially eager students of university-level math. We talked about Sinan's math equation tattoos and specific examples of how the mindset developed for solving mathematical proofs comes in handy, both with a data science career as well as in life in general. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, and URLs to Sinan's LinkedIn and Twitter profiles, as well as my own LinkedIn and Twitter profiles at superdatascience.com 445. That's superdatascience.com 445. When you add us on LinkedIn, it might be a good idea to mention you were listening to the Super Data Science podcast so that we know you're not a random salesperson. If you enjoyed this episode, kindly leave a review on your favorite podcasting app or on YouTube where you can enjoy a high fidelity video version of today's program. Uh, in it, you can see the smiles and laughs that we had today, and you can also see Sinan's skateboard, his chess table, and his tattoos. I also encourage you to tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Twitter to let me know your thoughts on this episode. I'd love to respond to your thoughts in public and get a conversation going. All right. It's been so great. Thank you for listening. Looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.